Hey listeners, I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. This week, I am bringing you a very special 20th episode with two-time Tony Award winner and member of the Theatre Hall of Fame, Mr. Joe Mantello. Directing credits include literally everything, including the recent production of The Boys in the Band on Broadway and the film version for Netflix, as well as the Broadway productions of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Hillary and Clinton, Three Tall Women, for which he received a Tony Award nomination, The Humans, another Tony nomination, Blackbird, An Act of God, Airline Highway, The Last Ship, Casa Valentina, I'll Eat You at Last, The Other Place, Dogfight, Other Desert Cities, The Pride, Pal Joey, Nine to Five, November, Three Days of Rain, The Odd Glen Gary Glen Ross, another Tony nomination, Laugh Whore, Assassins, for which he won the Tony Award for Best Director, Wicked, Take Me Out, for which he also won the Tony Award for Best Director, Frankie and Johnny at the Claire de Lune, A Man of No Importance, The Vagina Monologues, Bash, Love, Valor, Compassion, another Tony nomination, and Corpus Christi. Acting credits include Hollywood on Netflix and the Broadway productions of The Normal Heart, for which he received a Tony nomination for Best Actor, and the original production of Angels in America, which was his first Tony Award nomination for Best Actor. In total, Joe has been nominated for eight Tony Awards and won twice. He was also nominated for Emmy and Critics' Choice Awards for his performance in HBO's film adaptation of The Normal Heart. He's received Outer Critics Circle, Drama Desk, Lucia Lortel, Helen Hayes, Clarence DeWitt, Obie, and Joe A. Calloway Awards. Listeners, I am a huge fan of Joe Mantello, and if you aren't already, you're going to be by the end of this episode. I couldn't think of a better person to have for our 20th episode because of his unparalleled success in this business as both a director and an actor. We talk about his path from Illinois to North Carolina School of the Arts to New York and his transition from acting to directing, then back to acting and now doing both very successfully. He shares the story of what got him back on stage again after over a decade away. It is incredible to hear Joe talk about the audition room. He walks us through how he likes to run auditions and explains that there's no secret to auditioning. It's really just bringing your authentic, unique self into the room and doing it with confidence. Listeners, Joe is without a doubt one of the most influential directors in this business, not even today, but just ever. Not only is he incredibly accomplished, but he is incredibly kind and he's funny and insightful. Before this conversation, I admired his work and his career, but now I absolutely admire him as a person. So it is my great honor to bring you my conversation with the Joe Mantello. You are in, you're in LA right now? I am in um, Palm Springs where I have a house. Oh, nice. Have you been there the, through most of this out West? Um, no, I, um, for the first nine weeks, I was out in Long Island, uh, the place out there. And uh, because when, uh, when Virginia Woolf shut down, we were just told at the time that it was going to be about a month. And I think we all just kind of naively believed that. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to come out here, you know, jump on a plane at that time. I probably should have. So, so I spent the first few, about nine weeks out there. And then, um, and then I had to come uh, to Los Angeles to finish Boys in the Band, to finish the post-production on it. So I had no choice. I had to come in like mid-May. So I think I'm going to be here for the time being. 
Yeah, it's not a bad place to be, especially yeah. more stuff is happening in yeah. LA and digitally right now than definitely uh, on stage. Nothing yeah. is happening on stage. Yeah. What What was that like? You know, I guess walk me through maybe like that day where you were, where were you with Virginia Woolf? You were um, like in tech or you were like, where were you? And kind of how did that come to a, come to a close? An unfortunate close. Yeah. We were about um, nine, I think we had done nine previews. I think total we've done nine previews. And it was odd because I don't know if you can remember. And again, it seems kind of like a lifetime ago. But I remember watching a preview sort of the night before and uh, our producer, Scott Rudin, coming up to me. I was sitting in the back and he said, I need to speak to you now. And kind of pulled me out onto the street and said, there was an usher who was here all last week in the first week of previews um, who's tested positive for COVID. And at that time, that was so terrifying, you know, and, you know, everyone was alerted and, and it became this kind of big story in the New York Times. And you think, again, looking back on it, you think God, how naive we were. I mean, like, like the one, the, the, there was one usher with it in, right. in, up in the balcony um so then we, they, they did a big scrub of the theater people in hazmat suits and we had a meeting the next day and it was decided that the the cast was going to do the show and um and then it was and then it was i think the next day it was all just it was they you know all of broadway was shut down so it was really, really strange and confusing and nobody kind of knew what to do. Laurie Metcalf, who was playing Martha, jumped on a plane and went back to LA. But our other three actors were from London. And so they were all kind of just, you know, like, like I was, they were just gonna just hang out in New York. Um, and then as it, as it progressed pretty rapidly, and then there was talk about um, you know, shut down and people not being able to, to, to fly internationally. Two of the three actors ended up going back to London. So we never really, wow. um, we never really had any, we didn't have closure with it. So it's an odd kind of interrupted experience. And what a show to be like interrupted yeah. during, do you know? Yeah. I just did the show two years ago. So I know like that. And we only, you know, it was like, we only did, had like two and a half weeks or three weeks of rehearsal or something. So even by the time we, I closed the production, like we were just figuring it out because it's so yeah. much. Yeah. And so I can just imagine for you and those actors, you're still trying to find your way through that amazing text and to yeah. be like halted by it. Yeah, it very much felt like scaling a, a mountain. And uh, I think we had five weeks of rehearsal in, in the rehearsal room. So we had quite a bit of rehearsal and, and, and still, as you're saying, it's like, I've never really encountered anything quite like it before. It's, it's a beast. It was, it was really a struggle kind of trying to figure it out. Yeah. Well, I was so looking forward to it as I'm sure many people were. So I don't know. I was kind of daydreaming that you'd find someone to uh, make the movie with that cast. Oh, I wish. I would, you know, <laughs> no one's come forward just yet. I think we would all love to see a Laurie Metcalf version of it. So she's great. She was amazing in it. They, they all were really wonderful in it. And we were doing something different with it, or we were attempting to do something different with the play 
from a design point of view, you know, obviously the first act was was set as Mr. Albee describes, uh, though though perhaps our version of it was a slightly more uh, modernist house, less faculty housing, and more like like her father bought her a very very nice house <laughs> in the fifties. Yeah. And and then slowly what happened over the course of the acts is that it as you return to it wall you know the second act walls a couple of the walls were not there which and the the back of the bookshelves were gone and you didn't really notice it at first but you knew something was kind of different and then in the third act uh, it was really it was really almost took place in a void with all of that furniture and just a stairway going up in the back. So it was interesting. I mean, it was an interesting experiment, let's say. Who knows if it would have ultimately worked, but but yeah. we were definitely trying something that I was curious to see how, how audiences were responding. You know, and then at least in the nine previews, it seemed to be going pretty well. Yeah. And then the what I was able to see was the boys in the band, both the yeah. stage and the and the filmed version. So so exciting, and I'm so happy that you did do a filmed version. <laughs> now I just want the Laurie Metcalf um, Virginia <laughs> Woolf filmed version. Um, but the loved it. I loved the film version. I love that the same cast came back. Now I was wondering, did you finish filming that before the pandemic, or did you guys go back and have to re- reshoot anything, or? We didn't. We we finished. We finished uh, last summer, not this past summer, but the summer before. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we were done in end of August. I think August uh, 2019, and and then I stayed on in LA to do some more work. But also, I was editing at the time, and uh, so the film was kind of, for the most part, complete and locked by um, February. And so, uh, but the last, the, the, the last steps that we had to do, which is just kind of color timing and the sound mix we did in, in um, June when I came back. Well, congrats. I mean, it was like just very, very cool, very exciting uh, for me to see and, um, and follow up from the play, from the like wild success you guys had with the play. So I guess the, the question that I usually like start off by talking, asking about is like what you're up to now. It's kind of a weird question because... Some people are up to nothing. Some people are up to something they're totally um, not usually doing with their career during this time. But I just wonder, like, um, if there's anything that you can talk about that you're maybe that's next, that's coming up for you. I mean, it's a pretty simple answer. Um, you know, I have uh, I'm not doing anything work wise. And um, great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And um I don't know what's next. It's I'm really uh, there's nothing there's nothing definitive. Uh, I'm 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 not aggressively looking for anything. I I've been fortunate enough in the past year to kind of go from project to project to project. So I'm kind of relishing this opportunity to just take some time to myself and kind of just recharge and reflect and you know and just think about what it is that's you know everything is there's it's been such an upheaval not only um by the pandemic but just socially and there's a lot there's a lot going on and and i and i think that i think that for me at least just this a a moment to kind of sit back and kind of look and consider and try to figure out 
what my place is going forward. Do I have a place? Have I done enough? You know, like, like just, just thinking about those kinds of questions and, you know, but also waiting to, to just see what, what opportunities present themselves. I am also asking myself those questions mm-hmm. <laughs> on repeat. Um, yeah. What is my place? What, what, what can I, what can I do? You know, how can I help? Um, where am I valued? Um, and I'm, and I'm <laughs> feeling good to know that even you are asking yourself those questions right now, because, you know, in a world where like, I- I'm an actor and director, and I'm like trying to find a way to move forward uh, right now. And it's like, there are several things that have been introduced to the world that are just kind of throwing that all out of whack. So um, I think other people who listen to this podcast will be happy to know that you are also um, wondering those same things as well. Well, I think the thing that is coming through clearly, um, at least in our business, is that that, that, that something has been disrupted and something that was, it was necessary that there was a kind of a disruption. And that disruption can be a kind of a cataclysmic thing which throws people off, or it can be a time for reflection. And, and I think, and I, what I feel like is one of the things that we're, or I'll say I'm being asked, or, or that I think I'm being asked, is to really take that, take that moment and evaluate how things have been done, how I've done things, and to reconsider other ways of doing it or not. You know what I mean? I think it's, I think that's, that's individual to each person, but I've certainly spent a great deal of time kind of in self-reflection. Yeah. I think it's important. I mean, I'm always trying to go, go, go. And other people have said on the podcast, you know, I go from job to job to job and now it actually feels so nice to just like sit and reflect and listen and read a book that has nothing to do with whatever I'm doing, you know? Um, And I think that the work on the other side will only be better because of that, because of this time that we've like recharged ourselves. So I agree. I agree. I mean, you know, it's, it's that the disruption also creates a void and the void you, it, it, it it, it allows you to miss something and to, to, to miss something that is really meaningful, but that perhaps we one takes it for granted when it's just there all the time. Hmm. And so um, I'm, you know, I'm hoping when things get back that we all kind of engage with whatever we do with a newfound kind of appreciation and respect and gratitude for, you know, being given the opportunity to do it again. Yeah, for sure. I love everything, every, all of that. So I want to back up a little bit because I am, admittedly a huge fan of your work, of your career. I love what you've done. I want to hear a little bit of the journey of how you got from uh, Rockford, Illinois, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and then I went. I know you went to NCSA and then how you got to where you are now in LA or, you know, where I guess where you were on that, that last preview of, of Virginia Woolf. Uh, another a friend of mine who also did the podcast, Matt Lenz, um, oh, told yeah. me that he, you guys grew up in similar circles, and he was telling me about some scene or show you guys did together or something. So I'm like trying to remember what it was, but hmm. we did a we did a few things together. 
Yeah. So, um, so you were brought up on, on his episode because he was saying where you grew up was a little bit of like this art hub or like a lot of successful actor, director, you know, theater folk came out of that area. So I guess starting there, you know, give us a brief journey of how you found uh, acting or and directing and then how you made that transition and, and then, uh, you know, how you kind of um, landed where you are now. Well, I think, and I think you, you, you know, you probably have a similar story. At a certain point, you start to you start to feel like you start to be drawn into this this world and, and be intrigued by it. And you know, <clears throat> Matt and I were fortunate to to grow up in a city where there, for, for whatever reason, there was just a lot of theater. There was a, there was a professional theater. There was a community theater. There was a really good summer theater. There was uh, another. It was a college theater. Um, and then our, the high school that I went to had a really, really good theater department. Like our shows were excellent. Marin Maisie was someone that was oh, wow. to school with. And, you know, she was as talented then as she is now. And, you know, so, so most of us went from show to show to show to show. We, like, we did a lot. And then eventually I knew that I decided that I wanted to go to school to study acting. I ended up at North Carolina School of the Arts for four years. It was an amazing experience. I, I loved it. Though I had a kind of a, a, you know, like a crisis of confidence or sort of midway through, I left school and <laughs> it's a long story. But anyway, uh, I left school and flew to the Virgin Islands to find my boyfriend who was living there. And, um, anyway, that's a, that's for another podcast. Uh, and, and then, but then I came back and kind of like re, you know reaffirmed that this is what I wanted to do. I got serious in a way that I hadn't been before. At the end of that program, like most of the, I graduated with about fourteen people. All of us, or most of us, moved to New York and had varying degrees of interest and success right away. It took me quite a long time. Um, I sustained myself by, I did, I had a couple national commercials. I did one movie and then I started getting some theater work. And the thing that really changed everything for me was I became involved with a theater company that doesn't exist anymore called the Circle Repertory Company, which is where mm -hmm. Lanford Wilson did a lot of his plays. And initially I was in the, the second company. And then over the course of a few years, I became a company member. And they were really, um, that was really the place that was kind of instrumental in helping me to, to discover this part of myself that I had never really articulated before, which was the director's head or the director's brain. Uh, and so they gave me opportunities to work there. And yeah, I mean, it was slow going. It was, but it was a different, New York was, was very, was very different then. And, then I was cast, I'm giving you the highlight. <laughs> then I was cast in Angels in America. Yes. And uh, I did that for a couple of years. And then I slowly just started directing more and more uh, until I, you know, became exclusively a director for about 17 years. I, I stopped acting for 17 years through a whole series of events. I came back, I did a play. And now, I mean, I am, I would say that I mostly consider myself a director, uh, but I do act occasionally. And uh, that's how I got here. 
I want to know more about the you were an act you were exclusively an actor coming out of your undergraduate program NCSA yeah. you moved to New York you were acting and then I want to like know a little bit about that like transition or like how that spark came about directing and and how you voiced it to people and if people took you seriously and if you felt like you had to stop acting to do that at the very end of my senior year at NCSA I put together I don't know why the school year had ended but I people were leaving in dribs and drabs and and I um I just put together this evening of monologues from this play called Talking With which is a these monologues, they're all uh, done by women. And so I asked four different actresses in the different classes to just work on them with me, one of which, one of whom was Mary Louise Parker, who was amazing <laughs> even then. And, wow. um, but I, I didn't really, I guess looking back on it, I didn't, I don't know what was the impulse, but something in my unconscious was saying, like, try this out. But then I kind of forgot about it. I was exclusively an actor for a long time. And then at Circle Rep, as I mentioned, being a part of the second company, we had the opportunity to perform in this small little black box theater. And I did mostly acting there, but I'd had a, not a very good acting experience. And so I decided that I wanted to um, direct a friend of mine who had written this play. And we did the play. And then it got moved to the main stage the following season and but I still wasn't calling myself a director I uh, after it moved to the main stage I an agent approached me about re representing me and mm. I said it never even occurred to me that a director had an agent so I said well what exactly would you do um, but we figured that out and then he got me some work I continued to direct at circle rep and I think for a long time I didn't own own it, which maybe you can identify with as somebody who does who does yeah. both. So I and I think that that was just my way of letting myself off the hook because everything that I was doing, every everything that I, the way that I would uh, approach working on a show was all made up and instinctual. It was not no formal training whatsoever, but as I grew more and more confident, then I was able to kind of step in and call myself a director. But I remember it took, it took a few years. And I think it was really around the time that I directed Terrence McNally's play, Love, Valor, Compassion. And he was really the person who took a big chance on me at that time. Uh -huh. And after that, I remember feeling like I was a director. Yeah. Yeah. It almost feels to me sometimes like owning it or saying, you know, like what you just said, it almost feels like coming out of the closet again or just yeah. being like, you know, I'm going to like speak it out loud. And but there's like power in saying it or owning it. It's it like really changes. Yeah. And you have to take you take responsibility for it. You That's know, it. you know, when things didn't go well, I, I could just say like, oh, you know, don't know what I'm doing. Not really a director hobby yeah. you know <laughs> <laughs> hobby it's a hobby hobby yeah of course it's bad i'm not a director why wouldn't it be bad right uh, right so uh but yeah so then am i right in thinking that the normal heart was your like your return to acting and yeah. i guess i mean i can think of a hundred reasons why i would want to come out of my 
retirement of being an actor to play that role in that show. I mean, I saw that production. You were incredible. It was incredible. But what maybe was the way in for you or what really made you think like, I need to, this is something I need to do. Well, interestingly enough, maybe, or maybe it's interesting, you know, when I, when there had been enough years that had passed where I hadn't acted, I thought, because it wasn't like, there was no definitive moment where I said, I'm not acting anymore. I just, I just sort of stopped and I didn't miss it. And I didn't have any of those same, um, when I went to see a play, I didn't, I very rarely had those pangs of regret of not being up there. Occasionally when I'd see a great actor, or it, w- it was mostly like seeing a great performance and wanting to be up there with that particular actor more than it was, oh, I miss acting. So it was always really mm. a specific regret. But the, only, the, the one single regret that I had was that I had never played that part. And it just was a part that I had always loved. I saw the original production um, and it was, it was, it really inspired me and it motivated me and politicized me in a way. And there was just something about it that I always related to. And, mm-hmm. and so when the opportunity presented itself to do a benefit reading that my, uh, my friend Joel Grade was directing, I ran into him in the theater and he said, what are you doing? And we were talking and he said, oh, I'm going to do this play, The Normal Heart, this reading. And I said exactly what I just said to you, which is like, oh, that's the only part that I ever really regret not playing. And he said, well, come come do it, come be in it. And so I said, okay. And then, uh, and then a few months later or a month later, it became a reality. And I thought, what, what, this is really a bad idea. This is, I had no, I was really like walking on the moon. I had no idea what I was doing in rehearsal. And, but the night of the, the, the benefit reading, it all kind of came back and I felt liberated in a way that I never had as an actor before. And again, I think like we were talking that part of that is, is just because I wasn't calling myself an actor. I felt free to do it. It's a hobby. I'm a director. I'm a director. It's a hobby. I'm a director thing. It's a hobby. One night, one night. It's going to be bad. Uh, And so, yeah, but it's interesting. I think that's such a lesson is like the number that we do on ourselves. And, you know, it was just, it was me. It was the pressure that I was putting on it. And, but by taking that pressure off and not calling it anything other than I really love this part. And if you all want to come and, you know, pay money for a good cause to see it, I'll, I'll be there. You know, it was really, really amazing. And then they talked about moving it to Broadway. And I was really like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Um, so that took a little convincing, but uh, I'm, I'm, uh, it was a, an, an amazing experience, extraordinary experience, and uh, uh, I'm really glad I did it. Yeah, and then and then the film, and you jumped into another part, which was yeah. very cool, and yeah. you were fantastic in that role as well. Thank you. So I do want to hit on, you know, the podcast was birthed to, <laughs> I was a reader for many auditions. It's like my side hustle. And I just was always thinking, man, I wish actors could know what is happening in these audition rooms 
after they leave, what these conversations are, what directors are would say after someone left, you know, regarding an audition or regarding an actor. So I just want to talk about the audition room a little bit because, especially, um, you are you are one of the people that. Um, when I was thinking about this podcast, I'd be like, wow, that would be really cool to, to talk to you about the audition room, especially because your experience has changed being right. an actor, being a director, and then being an actor again. Um, it's kind of hard to talk about the audition room in like such a general way. But I guess like for a first appointment, like someone is coming in, they have sides. This is an awful question, but what are you looking for? I mean, like what make what makes you lean forward? What is you know, do you want the actor to be memorized? Like what, what are some things that just maybe are concrete things that you just know are important for a good first audition? Um, well, first of all, I want to say, I think it's really smart of you to, to, you know, if, I know you call it a side hustle, but to get in the room because there's something about, there's something about breaking that spell of like, you know, there's this kind of membrane between the waiting room and the audition room. And sometimes people just walking through that, through that doorway, like something happens to them and you see people who just psych themselves out, but by, by being a reader, and it is the, it is the one bit of advice that I give every actor coming to New York is get in the room. You'll see, yeah. it will be demystified for you in a second. You'll see brilliant actors who don't get the job. And for me, and I've said this before, is that I always thought that there was something that I didn't know that was going on in that room. And I was trying to figure it out as an actor, which just took me further and further away from my own instincts and my own sense of confidence walking into that room. I walked in feeling less than or, uh, or you know, just hustling to keep up or just try to, you know, I felt like a phony or something. So I guess it, it, the, the specific answer to your question of what I'm looking for is is simply I don't know. Well, I do know, but it can take many different forms. Uh, it's it's someone who walks in with a sense of confidence, who's worked on the material, whether they're I'm not I'm not a stickler for in in auditions at least memorizing or not memorizing. I mean, obviously I think you have to do whatever it is that makes you feel comfortable and it is, you know, will allow you to show yourself in the best light. But what I'm really looking for is someone who has a really strong take on it, who is confident in their take on it and who isn't trying to second guess what I'm looking for or what any of the other people on the table are looking for, because quite often we don't know, or we think we know, and you come in and you change our mind. Mm -hmm. I do this thing, like you were saying, because I've, because I've had to walk in to those rooms. So I meet every, I'm generally, if, if people are listening to this and they audition for me, I will meet you at the door just so that that person and I, that actor and I can have a moment where we look into each other's eyes and we kind of ground ourselves. And I want, you know, and as a sign of respect, I think you're coming into a place and I'm hosting you and I want you to feel comfortable. And it's, it's the two of us. And so quite often people walk by me or, but, but, but I, but I will always greet people at the door and then I bring them into the room and I generally introduce them and, you know, and I, I, I want them to feel comfortable and I want them to feel that I'm rooting for them because in fact I am. Mm -hmm. And then 
you know, they can have any questions. And then usually I then go retreat to a corner of the room. I never sit behind a table because um, I don't understand that at all. And then I kind of watch through, you know, it curled up <laughs> and, and it's, it's, a, it's a very odd, painful experience. And then if I have something, <coughs> excuse me, if I have something to, you know, an adjustment to make, I'll walk up to the actor and pull them into a far corner of the room and start to have a conversation with them as we would in rehearsal. And it's frustrating sometimes to my colleagues because they, they can't hear what I'm saying, but I feel like, well, I'm not putting on a show for you. This is, this is a private, intimate experience with this actor that I'm asking them to try something. And and not putting it out there for every so everybody can do thumbs up or thumbs down afterwards. So it generally goes along like that. But you know, I mean, obviously, you know, the world is changing. So a lot of it happens, um, you know, like self tapes now, or or I see a lot of people on on tape. So that's that's a different experience. I have um, a Zoom callback on Thursday. Wow. Um, What's that like? This is going to be my first one like live, you know, auditioning live with a cast, you know, I, in the email, I don't say who's in the room, but I'd like them to say like, you know, is there going to be eight bubbles or two bubbles or, you know, I was like asking my agent, like, do they have a reader? Do I have to get my own reader? You know, it's just kind of a surreal experience, but I'm not, I'm kind of looking forward to it. I think, I think it, it can only be fun. Yeah. I mean, it's, It'll be an interesting experience one way or the other. Have you auditioned anyone via like that platform yet? Have you had to do that yet? I haven't. Well, first of all, good luck. <laughs> we really <laughs> it. Um, I haven't. I've had, um, I have had, I have had internet uh, meetings with people, with actors, uh, generally people who are in London. So I've done that, but I've never had I've never had someone kind of read a scene. I, I don't know that that would be a useful thing for me. Yeah, I, I kind of wish that I was just gonna send them a callback tape, and then I could meet with the director, and he could give me a note or something, and then retape it. But um, I guess it's it's more and more a thing. So I guess people. Yeah. Some people like it, but um, anyway, the last thing that I just I want to finish with really quickly, I, I like to ask people, you know, what's the one thing maybe when you were getting out of NCSA and you were moving to New York with your friends and you were really hitting the pavement and you were early in your career, what's something you wish you knew? Like what's something you wish you kind of could have told your, you could have told yourself? And, and I know that we like learn things in our own time and in our own way, but you know, maybe more objectively is what do you wish some young actors right now knew or just kind of any actors about, about the business, maybe specifically less about the artistry and craft, but about, you know, kind of the bare bones of the way it works. I think I would have, I would have told, I would tell myself that there is no one way of achieving your goals. And if there is a way it's not it's something that will surprise it, that you'll be surprised by it's never it's not going to go the way you can't control it it's it's going to happen in its own time or it's not going to happen but the one thing that i would say is in the midst of all of that kind of confusion and ho- sometimes even hopelessness that 
the, the one thing that's important is to maintain your sense of who you are, what it is that makes you unique, to be confident in that, that it goes back to what I was saying about the auditions is like sometimes you, you know, an actor will come in and they will blow me away. They're so great. They're just, for whatever reason, they're not exactly, they don't, they don't match up with someone who's been cast or any number of things. Right. But generally in my experience, people don't come in and not get parts because they're bad. And so, therefore, I would say, walk in, show me the best version of you that there is, show me everything that's unique about your take on the character, be confident, celebrate that, uh, and, and then walk out with your head held high. Mm-hmm. That, that there is no secret that you don't know, that if you only knew it, you'd get the part. You know, and I think like for, for a long time, I, when I moved to New York, I've said this before, like I would go to auditions and I would have a briefcase and I changed my name to Joseph Mantello. And, and like, I was trying to do all of this stuff that maybe gave me a seriousness or a professionalism as opposed to who I really was at the time, which was kind of like a bit of a mess, kind of funny um, quirky, you know, like I didn't embrace any of that stuff. I was trying to put on a persona that did not exist and that inauthentic, inauthenticity, I think red. So, yeah. Yeah. I I love that. I think like what jumped out at me was authenticity and unique because, and that's hard because we see some of our favorite performers or some of our favorite actors or the people to the left or to the right of us in the audition room. And we're like, I got to be that. I got to do that. I got to be what they want for the part. But it's it's so much more, like you said, about celebrating what makes you unique and doing it confidently. Yeah, yeah. I think that is. I think that's the secret. I, that, to me, that's the secret in all of my years. The people that I, I can only speak for myself, but the people that I'm drawn to in life and professionally are people who are just unique and who own that. And and that uniqueness doesn't have to be loud. It doesn't have to announce itself. It can be someone who's very, very timid or retiring, but they know themselves. And you, when you are in the presence of it, you feel it. Mm, For sure. Yeah, for sure. Joe, I mean, I could talk to you for many hours about all of this. And I but I so I so appreciate your time and you um, chatting with me for the podcast. I know people are just going to get so much out of it. And I've enjoyed um, it's been a great excuse for me to connect with you. And I so appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. Really fun. For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Facebook and Instagram at The Breakdown with Robbie. And again, if you like what you heard, help spread the word and make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for another episode of The Breakdown. I'm